Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. In this one I speak to Lawrence Hutter, chairman of the Brand Experience Group and senior advisor to Quick Release and Alvarez and Marcel. Lawrence has spent his career building successful consulting businesses in the fast-paced consumer goods industry, from building his own consultancy, the customer group, through to running Deloitte's $6 billion global consumer practice, which he grew threefold during his time at the helm. If that wasn't enough, after retiring for only four days, Lawrence was contacted by Alvarez and Marcel, a conversation which led him to go on and launch their European corporate transformation practice, a practice that Lawrence and the team grew into a 100 million euro business. Having since moved into a portfolio career, Lawrence now splits his focus between his main passions of tackling climate change and working alongside firms to help them build and externalize their organizational narratives. In this conversation, we explore many of the secrets to Lawrence's impressive career so far and discuss the key lessons he's learned from launching and growing multiple consultancies, including how he was able to get his consulting business off the ground at a time when boutique consultancies were anything but the norm. 
the strategies that he used to grow Deloitte's global consumer practice, how he was able to do it so quickly, and what you can take away to help you scale your own business. And finally, the importance of narrative, what it is, why it's so powerful, and how it can be used and how you can use it in your firm to help you grow. Whether you are a budding consulting entrepreneur currently working on the business plan for the firm you want to launch, or you're a leader of a global business looking for advice on how you can take your firm or your practice to the next level, there's something in here for you. And I know you're going to find this conversation extremely valuable. So with the intro said, everything done and dusted, all that is left to say is please enjoy today's conversation with Lawrence Hutter. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm really excited about this. I am very much take recommendations from listeners, clients, friends. And when Jonathan at QR, who who ticks all of those boxes, said, you have to speak to Lawrence, I jumped at the chance. When you said yes, I was very happy because as we've dug into, I think there's a lot we're going to talk about today, a lot of exciting topics. So thank you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. For those who maybe don't know you so well, could you just give a potted history on your background and, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So graduating from university, I studied chemistry, specializing in molecular orbital theory and quantum mechanics, and decided that wasn't going to be my future career. So I decided to branch out into the commercial world and came to the view that I knew so little about the commercial world that I needed to find a place where I could get some structured kind of personal and professional development. And I applied to the uh, graduate training scheme for that part of Arthur Anderson that became Accenture. So that's where I started my career in the UK and did that with a mind to spend three years, get some basic foundation skills, and then think about what I wanted to do for a career. And actually what happened was I spent 40 years in consulting across a few different firms, but actually haven't worked for many firms, haven't made many moves over those 40 years. So I spent eight, nine years with Arthur Anderson, Anderson Consulting as it was, uh, then decided to branch out, set my own consulting firm up, which I started. Uh, I've actually funded it with three gold cards to start my own consulting firm, which sounds crazy now, but that's what I did. Ran that for about 10 years and that became a business quite well known for what it did. And we can talk about that if that's of interest. I sold that business to Deloitte. Deloitte was looking to develop its consumer, particularly its consumer products and retail practice in Europe at the time. And yeah, that's what we specialized in as what was called the customer group. And so I sold that business, took my entire team into Deloitte and uh, ended up after a few changes. Because at that time we had Enron, you know, some of the big accounting firms were selling their consulting practices. Deloitte did the opposite. It absorbed Deloitte Consulting into you know, the mothership. And I ended up running what we called consumer business for Deloitte globally. And I ran that for almost 10 years. Uh, and that was retail, consumer products, travel, hospitality, leisure. And I did that across all of the uh, service lines of the firm. So not just consulting, but corporate finance and tax and, and the auditors. When I stepped down from that global role, I had a mind to go plural at that point. In fact, I had a very interesting set of projects set up. I'd, be, I'd done quite a lot of work with the World Economic Forum, which I'll come back to uh, through my career. And I was going to run a really interesting program in India around setting up agricultural cooperatives and starting to professionalize food production in parts of India. 
But having stepped down from Deloitte, my phone rang. In fact, I, t- I left Deloitte on, I remember Christmas Eve 2012, and my phone rang on Boxing Day. But within two weeks, I was in New York meeting Tony Alvarez and Brian Marcel and was talking about something they wanted to do, which was start a corporate transformation practice in Europe. And they invited me to put a business plan together for that, which I did. Got to meet many of the A&M guys, fantastic set of individuals. And the rest is history because I was invited to start that practice working with a guy called Malcolm McKenzie, who I'm still very close friends with. And we built that practice and that practice is thriving today. One of the common threads through my career has always been retail, consumer products, consumer facing businesses more broadly. And I continue to work with those sort of businesses at A&M. And in doing that, A&M is a really fact-based business. And I was looking for a platform to help me quantify marketing effectiveness and efficiency for consumer products and retail businesses. And I found a platform which had been developed by a business called the Brand Experience Group, started to use that in a client context and, uh, Became a big fan, had fantastic results with it. When I stepped down from my full-time leadership role at AM, I became chairman of the Brand Experience Group and still chair that business today, alongside some other really interesting things that I'm doing as well, which we can talk about. But that's been my career. Very few changes. You know, a, a number of years with, with Anderson Consulting, then my own firm, and then Deloitte, and then Alvarez and Marcel, and now a few things which I'm enjoying doing. But that's, that actually is 40 years of consulting. Well, Lawrence, I think a lot for us to dig into. And I'm always interested, you were were talking about quantifying marketing impact and and running a marketing agency. I think that's the the biggest challenge for any marketeer. So I I think that was definitely something we'll touch on. But a lot for us to go through there and, you know, really interested in your experiences at every stage. And I think your first point around, you've actually not had that many jobs or not changed company that much, sorry. It it strikes me of something we talked about ahead of this show. And and you kind of mentioned people underestimate the impact of their first career decision. And you obviously, you made a conscious choice not to stay in chemistry. And why do you think having had the 40-year career, you have that first decision is so important? Why is is that something people should give a lot of thought to? Because I think, particularly when you as a graduate, start on the first step in your career, and you start to, to develop some functional skills that could be in technology, it could be in accounting, it could be in marketing, it could be many things. When you start to develop those skills, and, and maybe you even start to get some knowledge of certain industries, whether that be manufacturing or service industries or whatever, you, you start to become valuable because you have those skills. So your immediate promotion prospects and progression prospects tend to build on what you're doing. And lateral moves can be quite tough decisions. And therefore, yeah, if you're lazy, maybe I was a bit lazy, although what, what, my, what the story I've just told you hides a huge amount of variety behind what I was actually doing, because that's what kept me interested. I do think that people tend to progress kind of based on their, how their career is evolving step by step, rather than making tough decisions to change unless they're forced to do that. That's not always true. Many people d- deliberately make very, you know, transformational decisions to go in different directions. But certainly if I look back at my friends from university and the first and the first jobs they went into, whether that was in research or it was in medicine or it was in sales or whatever, actually a lot of them have kind of are still still progressing along those. Maybe have retired now, but their careers have been shaped by that. Actually my my second son Ben, I mean he's a, he's quite a good example. He's a, he's qualified as a medic at Imperial. Worked as a hospital doctor in the NHS, decided not, 
he didn't really enjoy that anymore for various reasons, but built on those skills. So moved into clinical research, running drugs trials. So again, he had a logical progression based on those skills that he's acquired. He didn't decide to go and be a management consultant. I guess maybe you've done this with your children or, or other sort of young people that you, you mentor. How do you help people make that decision? Because when you're 21, you're doing that with very little information. I mean, I, you know, I at 33 can still barely just explain what management consulting is. At 21, I certainly couldn't. How do you help, say, your, your children or others that you know to make that right decision? Or is it just making a decision is the important thing? I encourage them to play to their strengths, what they enjoy, what they're good at, you know, where, where, where I think they will thrive. So if I look at yeah, my kids and actually, I mean, they're all they're independent. They make their own choices. But my, my, my eldest was always you know, very technology savvy that actually ended up working for the BBC on the iPlayer. And in fact, he started his career with IBM. After three years, he actually was headhunted by the BBC. And actually, they asked him, did he know anything, anything about kind of video software? So he actually he then demonstrated to them a video playback system he'd written himself. Wow. And had the offer before he left the building. So your, your um, son was the founding father of the iPlayer, so, is what I'm hearing. So he was ve- involved in the very early part of it, yeah, which is, which was good. And actually supported the iPlayer through its most stressful time, which was the Olympics 2012. They had to nurse it through that because nothing, it, it had never coped with such volumes before. Wow. I, get, I was, I was going to say that that's the band, usage bandwidth. Suddenly uh, everyone was watching. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Shooting at three and, in the morning yeah, and that sort of thing. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, so my, my, and then my second son, he went into medicine. He, you know, he actually was, was a very good scientist and yeah, enjoyed those sorts of things. He was very good at it. So yeah, I've, I've told you about him. My third son, very much in the business of sport, works for Liverpool Football Club. Again, that's, that, that's his first love. And then my daughter, very good. She, she studied English, very good at it. I, I had an inkling she might make a good lawyer. So I suggested she looks at law. And she's now just doing her final law exams before starting a training contract with a law firm in London. And my 18-year-old's a good scientist, and he's going to read chemistry. So there you go. Well, I might, if we have time later, simply ask you how you manage with that many children. We've just had our first, and I, I can't, maybe it's because he's so young, I can't see past having one right now. So how you've managed five, I'm, you know, I'm in awe. But I, there's an interesting question in that, and, and I hadn't expected us to go here, but for other parents, I guess, how did you stay objective to those strengths and proposing careers that may not have been yours? Because I think when you do anything, and here we're talking about consulting, it can be very easy if you've had success and had a good ride to think that works for everyone. And particularly in consulting, how did you and, and your wife stay open-minded to that and encouraging them down paths that may have not been your path? Well, I said, I think it was about understanding them as individuals and trying to point them at things that would play to their strengths, but also give them a degree of personal development along the way. And I said, my son Ben, so he's now he's taken his first major choice, which was to leave medicine, but to build on his medical skills. Um, yeah, my daughter, I, I don't know how long she will stay in the business of law, but, uh, you know, I, it's something that seems to suit her personality. Interestingly, she is very focused on issues of sustainability and fairness in society. She's actually joining the only major law firm in London that's a B Corporation. Amazing. Well, kind of bringing us back to your story and actually maybe starting with your own business and the, the customer group, which you as you said, starting a business on three gold cards isn't necessarily something you can do now. But actually, I'd just love to maybe start that early phase of why did you do it? And yet, how did you sort of get the business off the ground in those early days? Uh, it, it wasn't common at the time. I think it's probably fair to say. But motivations, 
I've always enjoyed working with consumer-facing businesses, and I've always felt more comfortable in commercial organizations versus public sector. And at the time, Anderson Consulting, as was, was increasingly focused on large public sector programs. And, and I'd spent nine months, probably the nine months of my career I've enjoyed least, as project controller for the redevelopment of the National Unemployment Benefit System, with something like 700 civil servants reporting to me. And I didn't enjoy that. I didn't enjoy that. And that, that actually crystallized my decision, which was I want to work in retail and consumer and do the stuff I really enjoy doing. And I'd had some good experience before. You know, you know, in my early years, I'd done a lot of work with organizations like Colgate-Palmolive and Tesco and Unilever, businesses like those. That, that's where I felt most at home. I enjoyed those businesses. So I set my, set my little business up. Yeah, I left Arthur Anderson. And actually, the first major client I had of that business was actually Colgate-Palmolive. I did a lot of work with Colgate. And actually, as, as a general theme in that business, and this, this kind of plays to the story a little bit, um, at that time, the world's consumer products companies were transitioning from being what I call multi-domestic businesses, so individual country-based businesses that fundamentally you know, were responsible for their own P&Ls to integrated regional businesses. So from a European perspective, that meant that they were transitioning from being you know, 20 countries across Europe into an integrated European regional structure. What we spent a lot of our time doing in my business was working with those companies on their operating models, but also in terms of how they interfaced with a retail trade that was still primarily nationally based. So a lot of work around, for those people who understand the world of consumer products and retail, a lot of work around category management and those sorts of things. So joint projects between retail and, 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 and the suppliers. A lot of work around ECR, efficient consumer response, which was very much in vogue at the time. It's kind of died away a little bit of, over recent years. But that was the business we had. And we became quite well known for what we did and we were very good at it. Nine years into that business, what was clear was the next stage of evolution of the global economy was going to see those businesses that have become you know, regionally based becoming much more globalized. And we couldn't easily see how we were going to adapt to, to work with those businesses as the next phase of their development. And that's when we started to think, we, we actually had a, a quite a major you know, kind of think around strategy. We looked at establishing global partnerships with other consulting firms. We looked at many examples of where that had been done. Pretty much none had succeeded. I think it's fair to say, through cultural and other different priorities. And at that time, we started to be courted by Deloitte. And you know, yeah, that actually, yeah, both from a being selfish, a career development point of view, having run a business for a decade, but also as kind of the next logical thing. I think yeah, we needed a bigger playing field to play on, really. You know, selling the business to Deloitte made, made a lot of sense. So we did that. It was, that was a that's probably the hardest decision that I've ever made in my career. Actually, leaving Arthur Anderson, great, great firm as it was, was actually relatively straightforward because the, lo the logic was very clear to me. And I thought we could be commercially successful. And we were commercially reasonably successful. But the decision to kind of give up the freedom of running your own business, become a partner in a global firm, was that was tough. I, I lost some sleep over that. I think you've teed me up very nicely there, Lawrence, for questions at both ends of the journey. And I think let's start at the start and then we'll get to the end because actually the first point you made around Andersons weren't doing this, you saw a gap. How did you get yourself to the point either in terms of your mindset or in terms of the product you were, the services you were selling, sorry, 
to go out on your own? Because like you say, end of the 80s, it wasn't common to go out on your own. You were working for what was and still is one of the biggest consulting firms in the world. So if I caricature, there you are, fairly senior consultant, relatively little senior retail experience or consumer experience going, right, I'm going to go and launch a consumer practice in a world where small businesses weren't the norm. What made you do that and not just say, I'm going to start the Accenture practice or the Anderson practice as was? I'm not sure the ambition was that well thought through beyond actually what I want to do is, is, is work in the world of retail and consumer because that's what I really enjoyed. And I think if you've got a passion for something, then it kind of makes it work in a way. And so, yeah, when I, when I brought my first client in, which was, as I think I mentioned, it was Colgate Palmolive, then they probably sensed the passion. I had, I had skills they needed. By the way, one of the things I didn't mention in my early years with what became Accenture, I mean, Accenture is a very technology-led business. Anderson Consulting was quite technology-led, although I didn't realize that when I joined them. I realized that six weeks in when all I'd had was technology training. But anyway, but it was the old coding, wasn't it? It didn't used to do like six months of coding training or something. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was actually about three weeks of upfront coding training in London and then off to Chicago to, you know, the first school. And that was fantastic experience. Fantastic experience. I mean, the other thing you get out of a, a great firm like that, and Anderson had a great culture, is, yeah, there are people in my network today who I went through those first training sessions with. Yeah. And those relationships have survived and the the spider web i've always I talked about it with one guest i think a spider web of where people have come from and gone to in our industry would be fascinating because like you say at accenture and anderson the amount of guests i've had on who started in those places and we'll, we'll compare names after this i'm sure you'll know quite a few of them is, is quite astounding so i'm really digging in here because i think a lot of people want to start their own consulting business but there's lots of concerns and doubts and you touched on one of them how do i get my first clients and i I'd love to know how you did, because again, today's world, it seems easy. You fire an email off to enough people, something sticks. Did you go door knocking at Colgate? Did you know someone? How did you get in? How, how did that first project come well, up? I, I had worked with Colgate in the past, although not recently. And I kept in touch with them. because I've always been quite good at maintaining my network. And I was aware they were embarking on you know, quite a big European project that I thought my, my skills and the, kind of the focus of the business I wanted to build would be useful to. And I made them a compelling offer. And it worked very well. And it, in some ways, I had an advantage because I had a combination of clearly, I, I had a reasonably thoroughbred training, so I knew what I was doing, but didn't bring the baggage of a big firm that was going to try and sell a lot of other services. And they quite liked that. And actually, the relationship with Colgate lasted a number of years and did a whole variety of things with them. You know, everything from yeah, yeah, technology implementations through to category management training for the sales teams. And I think you, you've hit on two key points in there that I suspect will we'll come to at various points in our conversation around just that. Keeping that network, staying in touch with people is one of the keys to success. The other side of focus on what's good about you, not the things you lack. Because to your point, you know, there's, there's lots of Accenture had then that you didn't, but actually the things you had they could never compete on. Like you say, not trying to sell other things, not having the baggage. Sometimes I think people lose sight of. Yeah. But the, the other thing I think, and this is, this is shaped certainly my, my kind of commercial approach over the years, which is I, I do believe that if one's going to be successful, you need to have a combination of three things. So first of all, you need permission to have the right conversations. And that comes down to your know, relationships, the network, particularly how one's perceived as a trusted advisor. So that's the first one, permission to have the conversation. The second then is to understand the problem. And that's got a, a matter of you need to keep close to people. There's there are usually timing implications when it's the right time to try and solve the problem. So that's the second piece alongside 
permission to have the conversation, understand the problem. And then the third piece is you need to have a relevant solution and a differentiated solution. And if you can combine all of those three things, then it works. If any one of those is missing, it doesn't work. And yeah, for example, in, in, in leading the consumer business practice globally for Deloitte, I kept coming back to those three things kept on coming back to them with the partner group around the world you've got to understand you've got to have the relationships you've got to, so you can have the right conversation you've then got to understand what the problem is properly and then you've got to have the right solution to that problem and it's got to be a differentiated yeah accelerated solution for the client get those three right you have the recipe for business success i love that model and i don't want to assume so i'm just going to ask which is the hardest well, you do need all three. Without yeah, any anyone that's missing, it's not going to work. It, and the answer is, which is the hardest depends on the starting point. So, you know, if I put my Deloitte hat on, then often the hardest was actually the permission to have the right conversation. And I underline the right conversation. I was going to say right being so because I I what I I had an incredible team of partners globally, very high talented individuals, most of whom have grown up in the tax function, the audit function, other parts of the firm. Having a general business conversation yeah, was not always easy for them. And that's one of the things, one of my major areas of focus in my, my, my global leadership role at Deloitte was actually trying to help people to have the right conversations, have an opinion on the right issues. And it's also helped by you know, senior people in businesses, particularly chief executives, are the easiest people in the world to talk to because they just want to talk about their businesses. They love it. <laughs> well, you, you, let, let's keep going on this because I think it's, it's a really interesting topic. Like, let's take Deloitte, but guide me as, as is the best example. How did you help those partners have those right conversations? And, and I'm inferring to your point around CEOs just like talking about their business. It's the breadth as opposed to just the depth. So if I'm a tax partner, I can, you know, I can talk about tax, but I mean, that's not the best topic at a party. Like, it, was it that broadening out the conversation? Was it identifying the times to have the right conversation? What, what were those key elements within that that you found yourself having to coach those partners on most often? A, a, a big piece of that was actually to help them understand what was in the mind of the chief executive. You know, what were the problems that business was facing? But actually, if, for example, you're a consumer products company, pretty much every consumer products company in the world is facing the same issues. So actually, if you, if you can make sure you've got a team of partners around the world, all of whom are attuned to those issues that are going to be in the back of the consumer products MD, CEO's mind, then you start to have a very rich conversation because you, you build empathy um, you know, very quickly by simply knowing what the, the issues are. And in fact, I mean, you were touching on marketing earlier in the conversation. Actually, one of the things I did was I, I launched marketing programs designed around the industry issues. So for example, I launched a global program called Global Powers of Consumer Products which actually, with deceptively simple, created a list of the top consumer products companies in the world ranked by turnover. People love lists. They love lists. <laughs> they, they do love a list. But, 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 but then it's like had, the garden of magic quadrant. I know, exactly right. But then had insightful content around what were the issues and what were you know, why were some succeeding, what were the issues people were wrestling with. And then I would, you know, often I'd do a kind of a global tour and I, I present to all the offices, all the major offices around the world, that content and tune them to the issues that they should be thinking about engaging their clients on. Over the, my tenure as global industry leader, I think that made a real difference to the business. One of the challenges I think I've seen time and again with partners is if you get to partner, you're probably quite good at what you do. And 
you know, you've in some of these firms call it a fiefdom, call it what you will. Like, it's your business. You do what you want. Actually, as the global lead, how did you get people to accept what you were saying? Because I think very often in consulting, consultants are very bright people. If they have a product, they can convince themselves that everyone has a need. How did you get them to see it the other way around and not just go, oh, yeah, thanks, Lawrence, that's great. Bye, I'll see you in six months and I'm going to go sell my tax or my audit. How did you get that mindset shift for, the, for your team? Two key things. One, yeah, the, the, the business was pretty ambitious for growth and the partners individually were yeah, ambitious for growth. But they weren't always necessarily that well equipped to drive that growth in my particular industry. There were parallels in other industry sectors in Deloitte. So the fact that I was bringing them something that was a growth lever for them to use, actually, it was very well accepted. So that that was the first piece. So I, yeah, I, I never had an issue of people saying, ah, doesn't apply to me. Yeah, that worked very well. The other piece, and this was harder, I think, it's probably fair to say, was that as, as you will know, professional services practice partnerships tend to be built up of a lot of individual partners who are very good at what they do. And yeah, they tend to default to a model of building their business yeah, with their team, which they feed with good work, etc. The other piece of what I was doing was I was trying to take the firm to work more closely with the largest global consumer-facing businesses. And that meant establishing whole new collaboration models across the firm, not just within the individual practices, because that now I'm looking to combine consulting and tax and audit you know, in multidisciplinary client teams. But I was also looking to do that globally with the likes of Nestle and SAB Miller as was. And, and, and so alongside the, the industry story, what we were doing was building those international account teams. And people love that. Actually, they, they enjoyed discovering new relationships, yeah, work, learning to work with their colleagues around the world. And that also was quite an important piece of my growth strategy. There's something in that around, obviously, the outcome worked and i've never been a partner in a big firm nor frankly worked in a big firm so a lot of this is sort of is guessing but to that point around everyone's built their own businesses i how did you get everyone to see the benefit for them how did you encourage them that this route would give them growth i sometimes think that can be the blocker is you know change is bad unless you've proved otherwise so how did you show the benefits of that international approach and i guess get people over some of the concerns, for instance, could it mean my practice gets consumed? You know, if I'm in, I don't know, Hong Kong, could my practice be consumed by Singapore? How, how did you, if there were, deal with those to get everyone on the same page? Uh, th those were not so much the issues. But partners, I mean, there are separate issues we could talk about. I was going to say, I should ask, what were the issues? That's a much the, the, better question. The, 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 the real issue or the real opportunity and the, and the reason it worked is that by and large, partners in for professional services are very sales focused. And if you can give them tools that help them sell, help them enter yeah. large multinational accounts that they previously haven't had an open door to walk through, then they will tend to accept that willingly and take advantage of it because it's actually fundamentally, it's, it's financially beneficial to them. And actually, they're going to enjoy it as well because it's professionally going to be very good for them. And indeed, many of the people who were part of my global consumer team at Deloitte and who were partners in the consumer practice actually and our office managing partners yeah so yeah and because they've been very successful commercially and I'd like to think yeah I'd like to think I humbly made some contribution to their success no I, I love that and I it, it reminds me and it's it, it's quite 
old fashions are, I think, timeless. It's kind of the Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you're familiar with sort of sales or motivational speaker. It's the kind of help others get what they want and you will get what you want. And I, I'm kind of inferring that throughout what you're saying there, that kind of open doors, people will walk through them. It's much easier than beating them with a stick to kind of go towards a closed door, I guess, for want of a better yeah, metaphor. I mean, the, 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 other, the other piece of it, I mean, perhaps this may sound a little bit more philosophical, but uh, I, I've always had a view that actually the way to succeed was to, 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 to surround yourself with people who are more able than you are. And therefore, you know, to build a, a really good global leadership team you know, of people who wanted to work together, but were really talented individuals, that was the most powerful way of me achieving my goals. So- Actually building a global role, a global leadership team, I'd be fascinated at the point which you took that over, maybe the first 90 days, 180 days, because to give a sense of scale, my understanding is you took on a business that was about 2 billion big, grew it to about 6 billion, which even in today's numbers, like that's a mammoth consulting business. And I may just sound quite naive of almost, I can't quite get my head around how you run a business like that. So I would love to know, and yeah, you, you may have teed it up there with just, you get people below you who are, who are brightening yourself. But how did you go about getting your hands around that business to almost even decide the strategy that you hit upon? What, what were those key steps? And for anyone listening in a similar place, what should they be doing? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure I actually ran the business as such. Because yeah, if you think about the way a professional services firm works, you know, there's, there's a lot of you know, local capability, local resource, local delivery, which has its KPIs in terms of utilization, all those things. And, and yeah, I wasn't micromanaging that. What I, what I chose was to focus because yeah, there are local partners who know what they're doing. You know, they're good at their job. That's why they become partners in the firm. What I focused on was a few themes which I thought would move the dial. And I think my, you know, one of my big pieces of advice to anybody who, who's contemplating or entering into a, a leadership role of that sort is choose your big themes and choose them carefully. So my big themes were the industry insights that everyone could leverage and have those conversations because it yeah, helped give you the permission to have the conversation. It was around uh, multinational account teams which were also multidisciplinary teams. So that was the second pillar. And then it was around you know, help getting people to be more confident to have those senior level conversations. So yeah, to know how to engage with the CEO. So it was a very limited number of themes. In a different firm, they might have been different themes. But I'd been in Deloitte for a few years before I took on the role. In fact, when I sold my business, I sold it to Deloitte Consulting, as was. And I was running consumer products for Deloitte Consulting. And then Enron happened. And then, you know, Deloitte Touche Tomates, which was the mothership, absorbed Deloitte Consulting. And then after a, a, a couple of steps, I ended up running consumer business globally. Uh, but yeah, in a, in a different firm, there might be different answers. But it, I, as any leader, and I think, that, I think any chief executive would probably give you exactly the same feedback, which is choose your themes. There can't be too many of them and really focus on them and stick with them. You know, don't, don't change every year because it, it's a multi-year journey to have a real impact. How did you settle on those? Having come through the business, I'm sure you probably saw 10 things that needed fixing. You picked these three. How did you decide those were right? And how did you maintain the confidence to stick by them? Because I'm sure there were times when that was tested. A little, but not. But I, I think people got, became confident in the strategy. Actually, I, the thing that actually triggered those choices more than anything else was after I'd sold my, my, my little business to Deloitte. 
and I, yeah, I was looking at the, you know, just the, the work that Deloitte was doing then in consumer products and retail. I discovered that the average size of the projects that Deloitte was then doing in the industry was half the size of the projects that my little consult, my little boutique had been doing. And it was, how on earth does this work? <laughs> this, yeah, so, so yeah, it, it just, the model was not evolved to the point it needed to be evolved to take advantage of the extraordinary pool of talent and skills within the firm. So, and and I, my, my thought process was, if I'm going to take advantage of this extraordinary skill base I've now got and global reach, then I need to do certain things. And that's why the industry themes, the international account teams, uh, and helping people have those conversations yeah, with, with the chief executive. It, it really came out of that observation because it, yeah, I looked at it and I thought, I can't work. <laughs> <laughs> you made that point of almost you didn't micromanage those KPIs. You trusted your your team. For leaders who I'm sure you coached at Deloitte and, and other places, almost what do you say if someone turns to you and go, "Well, Lawrence, that's great, but, but what if something gets dropped?" How did you get leaders or advise leaders to get comfortable with kind of almost not sweating those things or not worrying about some of those downsides that could come? I mean, the, the bottom line was that wasn't my responsibility. That was okay. the jo- local Japanese firm's responsibility to make sure that they were you know, recruiting the right people and they were training them and they were deploying them in the right ways. So I wasn't micromanaging that. Yeah, I, I got involved in some of the most senior industry recruiting. So if we're recruiting a new head of consumer products in Tokyo, I get involved in that. But it was that was my lever into making sure that the local firm was doing the right things and hopefully to make sure they were hooked into some of the things I could bring them as global industry lead and my team could bring them to help them be effective in the local market. Got you. No, that that does make sense. And maybe just coming back to the report, and it might, like you say, the the touring that you did with it might have been the way you got the messages across to people. But how did you drum that in so that the whole team was clear on those three goals and clear on the direction for them? Because I imagine on a global scale, that is going to be massively challenging. That's a good question. And just by persevering, I guess, in, in, in one respect in terms of this is the strategy the setting up the global account team setting up their drumbeat yeah helping them understand how you develop an account plan in a way that's not bureaucracy but it's a living plan and just getting those ways of working in place that was part of it the other part of it or another part of it which was important was the external messaging and as with any narrative yeah it has to, it works has to work externally and internally so i did quite a lot of speaking on platforms like World Retail Congress and Consumer Goods Forum and those sort of environments where, again, the thought where, the thought leadership that we were developing in publications such as the powers of consumer products and we had a global powers of retail, that 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 thought where I was also taking out there and delivering in the public domain. But that was also very much targeted at my own people around the world who would be part of those leading industry events. So, yeah, building relationships with the likes of the Consumer Goods Forum and World Retail Congress were a part of my strategy, both from an external marketing point of view to get the brand out there and be relevant to the industry, but also, again, to engage my people because they could see that actually we as a firm were taking a world stage and talking about these things. That was important. No, I completely agree. I want to come on to narrative and it, it, I think for that reason, I'm probably going to draw an end to the, the Deloitte chapter, but actually with a question I wanted to touch on earlier, and that was taking us all the way back to when you joined Deloitte, because you mentioned you had sleepless nights around selling your business, which you run for a decade by then, 
to a you know, monolith like Deloitte. Obviously, it worked out well for you. We've just talked about, but I guess for anyone listening who might be in that same position, kind of what were those concerns, and and how did you make that jump work going from your own business back into a global consultancy? What were those concerns, and what turned out to be true? What didn't, and how did you manage that journey to to make it the success that you obviously had there? I think my my experience of running my own business, my own consulting practice for a number of years, actually was really good training. Because uh, if I think back to me uh, at the point where I, I decided I was going to move on from Addison Consulting and set my own business up, I really wasn't very commercial. I mean, I, I, I delivered great client work. I knew how to deliver client work. I understood the industry issues. That, 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 that was all fine. But was I really commercial? No. Did I know how to run a practice? No. What I do think was really helpful to me to be out there in the wide world for pretty much a decade running my own business. When I came into, into Deloitte, I found, yeah, I was commercially very astute. And that was really helpful. Yeah. So, and, and, and actually at the time, uh, following the acquisition of my business, Deloitte actually bought a couple of other businesses, small consulting firms, which were run by people who were ex-Big Four as well. And again, we as a, you know, there were a few of us, therefore, who'd run our own businesses and went out in Deloitte. And our way of thinking was somewhat different from the established ways of thinking in Deloitte. And it worked really well, I think. That's really interesting to hear. And I think to your point, actually, probably that was the fertile ground that let you build the practice you did. If you've got others who have come from similar backgrounds, been on similar journeys, probably have that shared mindset. I think probably wrongly implicit in my question is, how do you as a small business owner go back into a big corporate? But I think what you're saying is there was a perfect situation where the others you were working with had a similar commercial mindset, which obviously helped you then then go on. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, Deloitte was very welcoming. And they clearly had seen an opportunity and a need to develop, particularly the consumer products side of what they were doing, which was why they targeted my firm, because we were well known in that space. So kind of, there was an expectation I was going to go and do some things that would be quite useful. So when I did have a go at doing those things and they sort of worked, it was kind of, that was, that was quite nice. But the other thing I would say is this was really important at the time and, and very absolutely key to my success, I think, which is, you know, when I took that decision to sell at my firm to Deloitte, yeah, one of the key pieces of that decision was the nature of the peer group with whom I would be working in the new world. And that, you know, that, that was a really important part of the decision. And my advice to anybody who finds himself in the same situation I did, if they happen to be similarly motivated to me, was, you know, the quality and motivation of that peer group you're going to be with is all important. Later, yeah, you know, well, after I'd stepped down from the global role at Deloitte and just, yeah, you know, and, and was going to go and do some other things and Alvarez and Marcel happened, again, critical to my decision to accept the invitation from Alvarez and Marcel to start the European corporate transformation practice was actually an amazing group of individuals who, yeah, you know, I'd had the opportunity to be introduced to and spend some time talking to. And again, if the chemistry hadn't been there with that group of individuals, I would have done something different, I'm sure. Well, I think that brings us very nicely onto your experience with Alvarez and, and Marcel. And maybe to start us off, because I remember this stuck with me when we were speaking ahead of this show, you, you kind of said, if you hadn't done the journey you've just talked about with, with your business and with Deloitte, you wouldn't have been able to do what you achieved with A&M. Why was that? Combination of things, I think. One is I'd learned how to operate in a large firm. Alvarez and Marcel wasn't at the scale of a Deloitte, but it was still quite a large, complex firm with different service lines and geographies. So I'd learned how to do that. But very importantly, I'd learned how to start a business. 
And yeah, the, the mission they gave me was to start the European Corp transformation practice. Yeah, in an environment where ALM was great at restructuring distressed businesses and very strong in private equity, but didn't really have corporate practice. So yeah, the fact that I kind of was used to starting from scratch, what you do is you use all of the tools available to you. Yeah. You develop the narrative consistent with your starting point and your aspiration, but yeah, you, you use it to motivate and engage people. And yeah, but actually the resources you have available to you in the early days are going to be probably quite limited and being used to working with limited, but very talented resources. And there's something interesting in, in your story, Lawrence, and, and if the periods of time that you, in sort of your life you did this are important, tell me, is you've started a business where there was nothing. You've started a business where it was sort of a global player already. And, and to that sort of A&M point, you've started a business where they have stuff, but not in the space you did. And, and it might be that narrative piece you touched on, because I do want to come back to that. But actually, what are those, if there's two, three, five, I don't know, what are the commonalities? What were those things from everything we've talked about so far, those are the things you have to do consistently, whether it is a one pound business to start with or a hundred million business to start with. I understand the market. What are you targeting? What skills are you going to bring? What problems are you trying to solve? That's absolutely key. So that's common thread. Without, Without that, no, yeah. The same three nothing, things. The same three things. So that's key. Then I think the next thing is just be be clear about you know, the, the, your strategy and your story. Be good at telling stories, bring them to life with what I has been a, a theme that's run for a lot of my career, which has been what I call the narrative for a, a business. And you know, when I started my own practice with you know, the, the, the customer group, then relatively early on, we had to work out what our story was, that we developed our narrative. Yeah, when I had sold that to Deloitte and you know, I was starting that journey as leader of the consumer business practice globally, it was very clear we had lots of people doing stuff, great stuff. I mean, thorough audits, great tax advice, good consulting projects, quite a lot of technology stuff. But yeah, was, there, was there really a global practice that saw itself as a global practice? Not really. So we needed a narrative to kind of pull that together. And that, that's one and common narrative with what we're saying externally to the industry, to the people we want to go and do great work with, and energizing people internally. Yeah, there are pieces of narrative which are internally focused, particularly on the employer brand piece. But by and large, yeah, a narrative needs to be consistent. It's it's external and it's internal. I always like the way Paul Polman, when he was chief executive of Unilever, yeah, spoke in the public domain, particularly on the whole issue of sustainability. I'll come back to sustainability at some point in this conversation, if, if I may. But what I like was the way he told that story to his investors, to the public. But it, as he was doing that, he was also talking to his tens of thousands of employees globally. And yet they can't be disconnected. Yeah, it has to be one coherent narrative that underpins yeah, ev everything that the business stands for. So narrative has always been important. Yeah, it was an important project at, at Deloitte. But it, at, at Arvaz and Marseille, it was particularly important for the following reason, which is A&M, A&M is a great firm, by the way, love A&M. But its history, particularly at that point, and its reputation was very much based on the two things it was focused on, which one was corporate restructuring, you know, working with distressed businesses, and the other private equity. So 
actually, when as A and M, you know, famous for both of those two things, but not for working with major corporates and the sorts of things that I spent my career doing, that was particularly important to have a narrative that kind of provided the linkage from the heritage of A and M into what we do in the corporate environment. So, so we, we, we launched a narrative project. I, I shall never forget the first practice runs we did with my team on narrative, and I almost cried. Yeah, because we had such a long way to go. People couldn't really articulate what it was. Oh, sorry, cry, not <laughs> cried as in you were in awe of the narrative, cried in you were bloody hell. What? A bit like you know, the latter, yeah. So none of my team at the time would disagree with that. But no, we, we, it, it's just hard. It was hard, hard to do and we had to work at it and we got better and better at it. And that, actually that practice is thriving, not just because of that narrative, but its narrative is now very clear. I think this is a really interesting point to hit on to what you were saying about both external growth, but the, the internal impact as well. And actually... How did you, or do you now with clients, you go about building those narratives? Because you know, there's an obvious question, at, say somewhere like a Deloitte, where it's so big. You know, we've all heard the the sort of cliche of you get 20 people in a room to agree their favourite flavour of ice cream. It will be vanilla. You know, how do you go about creating a, an impactful narrative that does get people excited externally and internally when working across an organisation? as vast as a Deloitte, as vast as an A&M. And for anyone listening, what steps should they take to actually create a powerful narrative for their business? There has to be ambition, but that ambition also has to be based in reality. Uh, and I think the skill is balancing the, the ambition and reality so that the, the narrative energises but is also authentic. And I think that's, that's the leadership skill because you can't really do it by consensus. You can, you can involve people in the process, but ultimately you can't do it by consensus. I think the leadership skill is to synthesize that, yeah, to get that right balance of, of, of reality and ambition to deliver something that really energizes externally and internally. And that, yeah, I, I, I would strongly give that advice to anybody who's embarking on this, but that really is the essence of it and the fundamental skill. You mentioned your, your team at and when, when you started this, you couldn't articulate. So I'm, I'm imagining you're in a boardroom, you're going around everyone, tell me the narrative and everyone can't. How did you get to a point where there wasn't a powerful narrative and to your point, one that wasn't consensus led? Because even however small the group is, someone has to agree on this. How did you start to unearth the sort of, I guess, the gold that lets you build a compelling narrative? What were those steps that you went from, I can't say anything, to I can stand on a podium and talk passionately about this in front of people? Well, we, we actually developed, we, I mean, the narrative had various components of it. I mean, the narrative had an elevator pitch that we practiced. The narrative had, you know, frequently asked and answered questions, FAQs as people call them, where the questions we were being asked, we, we actually kind of bottled the answers. So we actually, we captured all of that. And it doesn't mean the script, those are scripts to learn, but it does mean there's consistent messaging. And I actually used a BBC journalist and broadcaster to run training sessions. So we'd, we would actually sit a little bit like this across the table that we videoed them and we ran training sessions in the use of narratives. So people started to be comfortable in using it. And part of the, part of the key to this, I think, is you've actually got to get people to, to live it and make it theirs actually by practicing it face to face particularly if you record it and can play it back and kind of think about how could i have done that maybe a little bit better or whatever actually people internalize it more powerfully by doing that 
So yeah, and I'm 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 just working. I I think you're aware. I'm working with a, a fabulous little business called Quick Release at the moment, which is an absolute gem of a business. And yeah, I'm privileged to be helping them distill their narrative and using some of the same techniques I employed. Yeah, in in Deloitte and at A and M and in my own business. And it's it's fantastic to see the way people just engage with and react positively when they see what they've always known the business is about, and they suddenly see it articulated in a way that's really compelling so i love the point you made around that faq and i guess there's sort of a thought for me of how do you shape that side of it because i think very often people will have rightly or wrongly a narrative a pitch if you like you know we're doing this this is the goal but that will also very often lead to your your frequently asked questions and i'd love to know how you decide what that top 10 20 30 questions are because i think that feels like one of the secret source elements in your sort of approach of if you know what they are, you can answer them and address them before they become problems. But how do you define them in the first place? Well, some is just intuition of what people are likely to ask. But as far as possible, it's what are people actually asking us? I mean, what, what are they asking us? And how well equipped do we feel to answer those questions? And so a lot of it just comes from that. That is more consensus driven, actually. I mean, the overall messaging is less, but just getting everybody's input into what are people throwing at you? What are they asking you? What do they want you to talk about? That's It's a living thing and it evolves. But yeah, that's the way you do it. And you probably do it through two different lenses. One is from a client and market lens. So what are clients asking us? Where, what, you know, where are the challenges they're bringing to us? Very importantly is what are our people saying? What are they asking? Because one of the things that a narrative is, narrative is about two things. It's about your brand as a business and what it stands for. But increasingly in this world where the war for talent is huge, actually it's got to very much be about the employer brand as well. How do you advise people to externalize the narrative more broadly? So speaking to clients, speaking to colleagues, you could do that almost in private if you want, and that's just sort of elevator pitch in front of them. What do you recommend people then do in terms of that external marketing like we talked about with the Deloitte report? How should people be making the most of that narrative to publicize what they do, what they're good at, et cetera, more? What, what's sort of that next step to take the internal narrative and outside? The answer is use it everywhere. So, yeah, if, if actually we're you know, qualifying an opportunity you know, with a client, use the narrative to position the firm, kind of pre-sale, if you like. If we're in a formal pitch, use the narrative messaging because we've worked on that messaging. We know that messaging lands well. If actually I'm networking, in fact, I'm meeting an old friend in a bar and he says, well, what do you guys do? I'm going to use the narrative to explain what we do. If I'm developing formal marketing materials, I'm going to use the narrative to populate those marketing materials. If I'm recruiting and I'm, and I've, I'm interviewing someone, maybe Nick, I'm recruiting you, or I've interviewed you, maybe I've talked to you for half an hour, I've come to the view, actually, actually, I'd like to make sure you're really interested in joining us. And I'm going to switch the interview style at this point, and I'm going to sell to you. I'm going to use the narrative wording to sell to you. So the answer is make it pervasive. Make it absolutely pervasive. Um, the more you can make it pervasive, the more impact it will have. Great points. And, and like you say, if you put the thought in and you know it works, why wouldn't you use it? I want to turn then, and I, this might be our last topic for today, Lawrence, but you, you highlighted it's been something you've been passionate about throughout your career, and, and that is sustainability. And maybe just to start, to, why is it such a big passion for you? Because you know, our collective survival depends on it, apart from anything else, and... I mentioned that yeah, I, I'm more comfortable working in the private sector than I am in the public sector. I've always been so. I fundamentally believe that it will be the leading businesses of the world and their ecosystems that will determine you know, the outcomes for the human race fundamentally. 
So yeah, always been passionate about it. I was privileged in my time leading consumer business for Deloitte to spend three years supporting the World Economic Forum's sustainability program for the consumer industries. So I had 24 chief executives on my program board. Actually, Mr. Polman was one of those and I would say developed his sustainability thinking, yeah, during those three years. But, you know, I had the chief executive of Nestle and Nike and Tesco and Carrefour and SC Johnson, and I, I, the great and the good. It was a formative time. It, and it was a formative time because, yeah, people were starting to talk about CSR. And I have to give us, I hate CSR. Yeah, CSR feels like greenwashing. It feels like an overlay. It's not about really what we're doing. It's kind of almost an apology. So yeah, CSR, I'm not a fan of. I do believe the future of the world will depend on creating value sustainably, driven by the leading companies of the world. And the reason that time was a formative time was we, we moved the dialogue from CSR to sustainable value creation. That was really important. However, we had a a gap. And I actually, I remember I wrote a memorandum to my program board members at the end. Dear dear ladies and gentlemen, we've done well. We've shifted that dialogue. However, we have a problem. Uh, And that problem is we had no way of measuring how individuals as citizens and consumers engaged with brand narratives based on what they were saying in terms of their environmental and social contributions and how that translated into choice and therefore translated into value and translated into therefore generating the, yeah, a circular economy because individuals were buying into what businesses were saying and doing in terms of becoming more sustainable. That was the issue. And I, that's the issue I've you know, since then always wanted to solve. Now, I, when, when I accepted the invitation to become chairman of the Brand Experience Group, I did so with one very particular reason which is the brand experience group's platform which measures how individuals engage with brands across all channels and touch points so it's truly omni-channel but it it, tra- it actually provides robust metrics in terms of how that engagement translates into choice uh, and therefore sales and market shares etc now what i realized was that but, but if we could profile individuals around the world as citizens, genuinely in terms of not just what they say they believe in, like less plastic in the ocean, but genuinely how they behave and what they do. And we we could use the, the Brand Experience Group platform to then look at how that drove choice and therefore sustainable value creation. So what we've done in the Brand Experience Group is we've created, yeah, in effect, the most important ESG metric of all, which is, yeah, if, if we're looking to change the world, indeed save the world, then, yeah, organizations, now here I'm talking about both private sector and public sector organizations, have to take citizens and consumers with them on a journey and it's not just a one-way thing, I'll come back to that, to more sustainable models of consumption and reuse. So by measuring the way in which individuals engage with both public sector and private sector organizations, we can actually provide that most important metric of all, which is around yeah, our, how successfully are we taking people on that journey. But the other, the other piece of that which is important, it's not just a one-way thing, because in effect – what we're doing is we're measuring the extent to which we are empowering individuals to make 
choices about sustainable lifestyles and looking at how both government and commercial narratives are playing into, and education, are playing into people changing their lifestyles. And by the way, it's changing quite quickly. We can see it in the data. And therefore, but empowering citizens to make those choices and through that, yeah. contribute to the development of a more sustainable future for us all. So that's that's my kind of passion and hobby at the moment to start to, to take those metrics now which are now we've got them in pilot with a number of different organizations around the world and start to make them ubiquitous which is our ambition it sounds like a fantastic ambition and a really unique way of tackling it to your point that kind of sustainable value creation if businesses know that this will hit them in the pocket if they don't address it, it it's a very easy way to to move them towards it i there is a question for me, because you touched on the sort of greenwashing versus actual sustainable value creation. What are you seeing in those early metrics in terms of how consumers respond to the, the difference? Because there's a cynical view that could be, oh, we just tell a good narrative. And as long as no one looks too hard, that's fine. Versus, yes, we'll actually make change for sustainability. Are consumers savvy to that? Are you seeing that in the data? You know, When you were on that, the committee you chaired with the CEOs, is that something they're live to or is that still a journey we've got to go on? Yeah, it, it actually comes back to this whole issue of authenticity and authenticity of the narrative. And um, by the way, alongside you know, our, our humble efforts in, in this space, we, are, we absolutely applaud the efforts of the new International Sustainability Standards Reporting Board, which was launched at COP26, providing you know, ESG metrics you know, linked to the UN SDGs, all that, all that good stuff. All that's really important. Now, what we do complements that, and this is how we get to authenticity, because this is really important. So imagine a two by two, all cons consultants love two by twos, right? So now my x-axis of this two by two is established ESG metrics. You know, it's carbon footprint, it's pollution, it's health outcomes and you know, labor in the tea plantations, whatever. Okay. The y-axis is consumer engagement with a brand's narrative, particularly with the sustainability dimensions of that narrative. So this is about environmental impact, social impacts. And by the way, people engage with very local dimensions of that. But so y-axis, engagement with the narrative, x-axis, true ESG performance. This is really important. Now, if I'm top right in this two by two, okay, so my actual ESG commitments and actions, I'm doing well. People are believing my narrative, okay? So I'm actually creating value sustainably. I'm drawing people into the circular economy. If I'm top left in this two by two, I'm telling a good story, but my ESG fundamentals don't really support it. So I'm, A, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating what I'm doing, but in reality, I'm probably greenwashing. And if I was an investor, I would be very nervous of the implications of that. And if I was a consumer, I want to know too. Right, so that's important. Bottom right, bottom right, I'm working really hard at the fundamentals, but my narrative isn't landing. In, in fact, many established brands in our analyses find themselves bottom right because they carry a lot of baggage. Yeah, they may be doing the right things and they may be trying to tell the story, but it's not seen as authentic. So they've got work to do to understand how better to communicate that. If I'm bottom left, then I really am I'm not doing anything. I'm not, yeah, I'm not working at being more sustainable. I'm not telling a good story. So I've got to have another reason to exist as a business because otherwise I'm going to lose relevance. So you might find, yeah, certain very hard discount businesses who are not focused, we'll take all of them, but you're not focused so much on you know, ESG issues. They could end up being bottom left and actually their differentiation is just price. Doesn't always follow them. Yeah, actually, it's quite interesting to see some, some, some of the very, you know, very 
aggressive commercial businesses are also doing quite well in terms of their ESG initiatives. But that two by two is really compelling. You take a company through that and you benchmark them versus their peers on that two by two, that creates a lot of interest. That's one of those permission to have the conversation things, right? Very good. The other thing is size. Because we're quantifying the impact on choice, we put numbers on that. So we can see that, for example, if you look at UK retail, some stuff we've done, our data is in the public domain. Yeah, we can see the impact on the turnover of each UK grocery retailer, for example, of how they are perceived from a sustainability perspective by yeah, their, their shoppers and consumers. The other thing I just say is looking at this over time, what we're seeing in most developed markets now, certainly European markets, North America would look like this, that now significantly more than 50% of individuals are now either somewhat concerned very concerned or passionate about sustainability issues. And those are playing into choices. So the actual value impacts of the right sustainability strategy and narrative are, as we measure them, much larger than most business leaders realize. So that, this is, this is going to be an exciting year or two ahead. Definitely. And, and to your point around the, the data you've, you've released publicly, please send me a link. I'll put it in the show notes because I'm, I'm sure you know, our listeners will want to find out about it. I'll try and stick with the two by two and you tell me if I, I break it. Take those bottom two quadrants here. Not doing enough or doing lots, but need to talk more about it. There's always lots of good ideas for how to do better, how to improve, but rarely do those sort of thoughts become things. And I'd love to know your view on how people, how companies can change that and actually what people should be doing to help turn some of those great thoughts. As I say, we can keep the sustainability here if it's the best topic into actual changes to move them into that top, you know, that top right quadrant? Well, we can stay with sustainability. I mean, and and, the answer is there are leading businesses that are now doing quite a lot. Yeah. And and we've actually, some of the consumer products companies actually are leaders in that field. I mean, I would cite two I mentioned before. P&G does a lot of great stuff. Unilever does a lot of great stuff. Nestle's doing more and more. I, I, I love Nestle's creating shared value concept which is creating value with kind of your, your ecosystem of suppliers, growers, et cetera, in a way that, because actually the shared value concept is really important to actually becoming more sustainable because actually it's, we're, we're going to become not just us as a company more sustainable, but our entire value chain is going to have to become more sustainable. So that I, see, I do see companies doing a lot. Many businesses are quite challenged with it. I mean, if I'm an oil and gas company, it's going to be tough. What I do think it also comes back to, to the authentic narrative and what the business is trying to do. Yeah. It would be unreasonable to expect every business to be sustainable tomorrow. However, I do think those businesses that can be authentic about their journey and where they're going and their, their, and their narrative reflects that will have a, have a market advantage over those that do not. So even in the oil and gas field, we see some businesses that actually are, you know, they're set on their journey ahead. They are going to move to more sustainable energy sources over time. Yeah, they recognize it's going to take time, particularly in the current environment we're living in economically, but it's going to take time. Their narratives are authentic about that. They're they're energizing their people, their clients around the fact they are embarked on that journey. So I I think being authentic about the journey and where you are, in effect, go back to the two by two. Yeah, we we might actually have been bottom left Yeah, yeah, a couple of years ago. We actually are going to aim to go top right. 
But yeah, it's a northeast trajectory and I'm going to be authentic at every point in that trajectory and my metrics will reflect that. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's, there's a question for me of how can people get comfortable with that authenticity? Because I think there is something, and if you're a big company who's used to saying we're the best at whatever it is we do, you've got to be quite humble to say, uh, we may have got this wrong, but we're going to improve it, which I guess is that authenticity. Is that just part of the narrative journey you need to go on? But how can people kind of get comfortable with, I guess, the potential risk that if you say you're bottom left, suddenly everyone will disown you? How do you sort of recommend people get comfortable with that to be authentic? Well, ultimately, you need to empower people with information. So you actually have to give them information about the environmental and social impacts of products. Now, that's hard because you know, products tend to have complex supply chains. So how do you do that? How do you get to the carbon footprint? But the answer is going to will have to be, and it's it's already happening, that we're going to have to actually give people information that at the point of product choice that allows them to make those choices about a more sustainable or a less sustainable product. An example, by the way, which is quite interesting, people don't talk about it very much, but if you go onto Amazon these days, you'll find certain products have their climate-friendly pledge. And Amazon is starting down the journey, other retailers are also doing so, to start to provide information when they can that can inform more sustainable choices. So ultimately, it's about that. There are a lot of, well, not of, a fair number of independent rating agencies also that are starting to, you know, to give you, you know, information about products and brands. So for example, in the, in the apparel space, good on you which is an absolutely independent ratings agency. Yeah, they'll send out every week. Typically, there'll be a new appraisal of a new major brand. And if it's not performing as they think it should, here are the more sustainable alternatives to this brand, which we'd recommend. So it's starting. People are going to be armed with better information. And as we see that trend in the population towards more people being you know, influenced by considerations of sustainability around product and service choice, that's going to just grow more and more. By the way, if you look at the breakdown of those individuals who are more motivated, they tend to be better educated, better off, younger. So they're the future. <laughs> I think a, a compelling reason to change. And like you say, I, I imagine it's now this data is out there, it's as a company, whatever your industry, you're getting ahead of that. And to your point on authenticity, there's nothing wrong with saying you've only just come to this conclusion as long as you can tell the narrative of why and, and how you're going to improve it. You know, I, I liken a lot to sport just because it's the only metaphors I can do. And I think we've all had times where we're unfit, but you have to acknowledge you're unfit to get fit. I think to your point, the inauthentic example would be saying, I can run a marathon tomorrow having not run in six months, for instance. It is hard for long-established brands sometimes to get fit in your terms. Yeah, and we see that in the data. Yeah, it's easier for a new startup brand that positions itself as socially responsible and sustainable because that's what it stands for. It's easier for that brand to be recognized as such by customers and consumers versus a brand that's been around for 50 years, carries a lot of baggage, and is seen as kind of old school. So what, what we see in the data yeah, in terms of our sustainability metrics is we see yeah, younger new startup brands and if you like new economic model brands, even home delivery services, yeah, you know, Uber Eats, and et cetera, they over-index in terms of how they're seen as being sustainable, irrespective of the carbon footprint, for example, of their delivery system. And within that, I guess there's, to your point, the, the bigger brands that are 
that perception is harder to shift are actually the ones where as a, as a world population, we need those people to be driving this because those will have the biggest impact on change, you know, to your point, sort of, it's not easy, but a startup can say they're climate positive, you know, carbon neutral, but Nestle is probably a million times bigger than them. And actually seeing those brands make that shift and we probably don't have time for it today, but would be fascinated around how they've done that because I know Nestle is a great example of a brand that hasn't previously had those credentials and you know has had its fair share of issues in that respect, but actually how they're shifting that and both the actions and the narrative around that, I think is probably a fascinating case study. And, and sometimes there are category specific issues that are going to take a while to address. I mean, a great example, it's not doesn't just affect Nestle, but affects all players in the pet food sector is, uh, yeah, let's take an example. About 168 million cats and dogs in the US, if you look at their meat consumption, it makes them the fifth largest country in the world in terms of meat consumption. So, so the pet food, particularly for cats and dogs, is a very meat-heavy category at the moment. Now, persuading people to that actually, you know, they're going to feed their cat on vegan cat food, that's going to be a journey, but it's a journey we're going to have to go on because actually the pet food industry in its current form is unsustainable. Uh, so, so sometimes these things are, it's not, it's not saying that the, any particular pet business is good or bad, but it's just uh, yeah, that actually there are business models that are going to have to go through such transformation that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a multi-year process. And it comes down to the authenticity of the narrative as well to take people on that journey. And actually persuading, for example, U.S. citizens and U.S. dog food marketing has been all about, it's all meat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually the core message is this dog food is uncontaminated with anything that's not meat. Yeah, moving from that to actually a better balanced diet with less meat is right for your dog. Oh, that's going to be a journey. Just an example. We've done, well, we've, we've done it with smoking. Um, and yes, I think this is probably... Where I always find with these conversations, we could talk for more hours, but I know you have meetings to get to. So I think, Lawrence, that's probably a good place for us to, to start to come towards a close. And with that, there's just a couple of questions I ask every guest. And given everything we've talked about from your building your own business to, to running De- Deloitte's consumer business to A&M to, to sustainability, I'm sure you'll have some interesting thoughts on these. So the first is books. And very simply, the question is, what is the book or books you you find yourself recommending most and and why is that the business book that's been most influential on me my thinking and when i it's 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 quite old it's called in search of excellence most people have heard of it tom peters and robert waterman by memory in terms of authors and it the, the reason for that is it taught me something which is i've used throughout my career which is kind of think about when you're designing an organization or transforming an organization and operating model. Yep. Think less about, you know, reporting lines and metrics and those sorts of things. Think more about how do you empower and support people? And that's, that's the message of In Search of Excellence. It's about how organizations can empower and support people while providing some guardrails, which you need. But that's the book that's been most influential on me and, and the one I would always share. There are many others, but that one never leaves my thinking. Amazing. Well, great recommendation. Are there any other books, non-business, that you find having a big impact or have had a big impact on you? And if so, I'd just love to know what they are. Yeah, well, a book I've always enjoyed, and partly because I actually spent a number of years working in Egypt. I didn't mention that in my history. But the Alexandria Quartet, in terms of novels, is something that's always fascinated me, and I've read multiple times. But there I are. But I I, I lived in Cairo. In fact, I 
when I was relatively early in my career with with Anderson Consulting, I had got a little bit fed up with the tech stuff I was doing in the UK. And actually, and this is well before I was thinking about leaving the firm, I, I actually asked if I could transfer to Cairo. I knew Egypt quite well for bigger students and yeah, and, and, and I quite a lot of interest in history and the like. But I, I actually asked if I could transfer to Cairo for a, a couple of years. Bizarrely, what I didn't know was at that time, there was a conversation between Arthur Anderson in Washington and the World Bank around a program to drill for gas in the Gulf of Suez and pipe gas into downtown Cairo for the first 50,000 homes. There were issues with where the money was going on that project. It was a big project. Literally the day after I made that request, I was invited to one of the senior partners' offices in Anderson's offices in London. He said, were you serious about the Cairo thing? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, right, we've got a project. Could you be there next week? And I ended up as project controller for the that project to you know drill for gas. This one of the things that's not a consumer project. That was one I was kind of a bit left field, but it was pheno- it was phenomenal experience. That's phenomenal experience. Lawrence, I, I feel somewhere there will be a round two where we we talk about the the various projects and journeys because I sadly I rarely open these questions up because of time, but I'm sure there is a lot in that, and frankly, a lot of people can take from uh, yes, you make your own luck in some of those in some respects. I think that's a great example of it, and thank you for the recommendation because yes, I. I think it's not just business books that can have an impact or frankly that you can enjoy. And uh, my wife and I are on holiday next week. So I think particularly she loves those. Is that a sort of historic novel set? Is that? Uh, it is a, it's set, set in Alexandria, the early part of last century. I think that would be right. Uh, right and, up and it's really, it, 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 if you're into kind of novels, it's, it's four novels. The first three are, tell the same story from the perspective of different characters. And then the fourth novel takes it on. But it's absolutely fascinating. And I loved it partly because I, yeah, I was very into Egypt and Egyptian history. And I love that. I've never actually heard of a series which does that. So that, that does sound fascinating. Thank you for that. And then the last question, and this could be a recap of things we've touched on. It, it could be something new, but you've got three people in front of you. One is that first year graduate as you were, you know, going into Anderson's. You've got one who's sort of what I'd call in Anderson or Accenture Partners a manager level. And then you've got someone approaching partner. And the question is just what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? The first would be so new starter, get lots of good experience, deliver great work. Yeah, start to take a view on the things you really enjoy most. Solid delivery, get your foundation skills in place. Four or five years in, so I'm now kind of manager level, kind of probably, depending on the practice. So I would say start thinking about your personal brand seriously. I'm not saying leave it till then only, but yeah, there you really need people to understand what you stand for. Uh, uh, you know, when when people think about it's a procurement project or oh, it's a category management project or whatever, what name comes to mind? Also, yeah, is it is it? Do you want to be famous for being a solid deliverer or a great strategist? But just think about what you want your personal brand to be. That's going to be important because building on that comes the third. Yeah, you need to then at the point where you're getting towards partner level, you need to demonstrate that you can you are economically self-sufficient and responsible and can feed a team. So yeah, build building on my personal brand and where I want to practice, you're building a practice. And the best way to get promoted to partner is to already be doing the job. 
So, so yeah, make sure you're already selling the work, delivering the work, mentoring the people, recruiting great people. But you know, really, you know, I said some things earlier in this conversation about, yeah, you don't just want to be an independent practitioner as a partner. You want to work as part of a wider team. But at the same time, make sure you are, yeah, a, 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 an entity that is self-supporting. Fantastic. Well, I think a brilliant place for us to end, Lawrence. And the only thing left to ask is for anyone who's enjoyed this conversation, wants to find out more about you, more about your work with climate change, more about the brand experience group or, or what you're doing with quick release, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Uh, on my LinkedIn, my email addresses are there. Amazing. So they're well, in the public domain. We will, we will put links to all of that who's in the show notes so that people can find you. As I say, if you've got any of those stats you were talking about that are available to share, send me a link. would love to sure. share them. And otherwise, all that's left to say is thank you very much. Really enjoyed this and enjoy the rest of your week. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks Nick, a lot. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.